Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, our staff attorney, Hanna Viscara, speaks with our Electricity Law Initiative Director, Ari Pesco, about comments he submitted to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in July on the consideration of greenhouse gas emissions and natural gas facility certifications. We hope you enjoy the podcast. So Ari, we, you recently uh, submitted a comment to FERC on their policy statement on certification of new interstate natural gas facilities. Why don't we start by speaking a little bit about what their FERC statement is about and how they use it. Can you tell us? Sure. So uh, FERC uh, has authority under the Natural Gas Act uh, to regulate uh, entry and exit into the natural gas pipeline industry. So in other words, if you want to build a pipeline that's going to cross a state line, uh, you have to go to FERC and essentially ask them permission to do that. And FERC in 1999 issued a policy statement that basically outlined how it was going to make that decision. Um, And earlier this year, FERC decided to start a docket to open comments on that policy, uh, or rather take comments about that policy and and whether or not that policy should be updated uh, to reflect changes in the market. Um, And uh, so we filed a comment uh, in that docket about this policy. 1999. So a lot's happened since 1999. Yeah, so FERC, you know, talks about in, in its, you know, FERC put out a notice of inquiry, which is sort of a, the, the first step in this process of potentially updating the policy. Um, and there's a little bit in there about some of the changes that have happened in the natural gas market since 1999. Um, you know, the, the, the big one that gets a lot of attention is the shale gas revolution. Uh, so we, we produce more natural gas in the U.S. today than we ever have before. Um, and, you know, one thing that, that we mention, uh, you know, it's really relevant to our comment, another change since 1999 is greenhouse gas uh, regulation. It's now clearer than ever that uh, greenhouse gases are uh, contributing to climate change. Um, and there's, you know, an increased focus at the state level and even at the national level as well, despite, you know, recent things that have happened with this administration, um, you know, there's regulation of greenhouse gas that simply didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. And beyond regulation, there's also fiscal impacts that we're seeing and are more apparent in potentially impact facilities uh, and investor interests as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, um, as we discussed in our comment, present a range um, of risks. And so, um, you know, there's the environmental consequences of greenhouse gas emissions, Um, And there's also, um, you know, economic risks for investors. So one way this plays out um, in the natural gas space is that, um, you know, uh, uh, demand for natural gas uh, may change due to many factors. Um, You know, there could be competing technologies that are just simply better than natural gas on a performance level. So, um, you know, it could be that we'll have more electricity, for example, generated from the wind and, and, and from solar rather than fossil fuel burning facilities. Um, but it also could be that due to regulatory changes, it becomes less attractive to use natural gas for all the things that it's used for today, which includes electricity generation and, and, and um, you know, heating in buildings being two of the major um, uses. So, 
um, there's there's a range of risks uh, associated with natural gas, and, and that's one of the main areas of focus for our comments. And as I understand it, the the policy statement outlines the commission's approach for determining if a proposed project meets the public convenience and necessity standard, which is required for certification. Can you tell us a bit about the history of that standard? A lot of your, your comment focuses on this history and uh, how, how it uh, allows FERC to consider these issues. Yeah, so I should take a step back for a minute and talk about what the law says and how that relates to the policy statement. So um, the Natural Gas Act you know, as I said, it gives FERC the power to regulate entry into the pipeline industry, and it, and it tells FERC um, to approve projects that are required by the public convenience and necessity. Um, and that's, you know, that's really the single phrase in the law. Um, and f- just from that phrase, FERC over the, you know, since 1938 when the law was enacted has built up an understanding of what that phrase means and the policy statement sort of based on that understanding. But Congress itself in the Natural Gas Act didn't invent this phrase. This public convenience and necessity phrase, uh, you know, is from state laws starting in the late 19th century. Um, and so state utility regulators, um, you know, regulated entry into a range of industries, you know, starting in, as I said, in the late 19th century. So that included, you know, electric utility service, gas utility service, but it also included um, other industries. For example, there's a Supreme Court case from the 1920s, I think, about uh, ice manufacturing in Oklahoma and how that was also part, you know, subjected to the public convenience uh, and necessity standards. So regulation under this standard is is primarily looks at economic factors. It primarily state regulators historically looked at, um, you know, how what's sort of the optimal level of competition in this particular industry. And we think now of competition sort of being a hallmark of our, you know, capitalist system and that competition drives innovation and it um, lowers prices for consumers. Um, but there were certain, you know, industries that have been considered, uh, you know, either monopoly industries or subjected to heavily regulated competition. We think of, you know, public utilities like gas and electric as being examples of that. And so it was up to regulators using this public convenience and necessity standard to think about what is the optimal level of, of competition or is a monopoly the way to go for this industry. And so they would think about um, you know, protecting the investments of utility investors under the standard, and they would think about, um, you know, preventing duplication of facilities. So you wouldn't want, for example, if you were a local regulator, you wouldn't want necessarily competing sets of pipes to go up and down every street because somebody might go bankrupt, and then you'd have just this useless system of pipes all over the all over the town. Um, and so. Public convenience and necessity standard was really uh, the heart of it was just sort of economic. Uh, regulation and competition. Um, But there's another thread of regulation under this public convenience and necessity standard that thinks about broader impacts um, to the community. Um, And so there's, there's, there's historic basis for considering things like environmental effects um, under this standard as well. When you think about, you know, should this new company be allowed to enter this industry, you want to think about not just the economic effects for consumers and for other companies in that industry, but also what are going to be the larger effects on society. So the history of this public convenience and necessity standard is essentially an economic balancing test 
that takes into account some of those externalities, uh, both on the communities in which they serve. Is that correct? Well, I think part part of it is an economic test, and then I think um, in in a lot of ways these externalities, including environmental externalities or public safety externalities, uh, may not be part of that economic test. They may have sometimes been considered separate from that. So that's that's a pretty rich history for the public convenience and necessity standard. Where has FERC taken these issues? They, it's apparent that environmental uh, considerations have in the past been incorporated into this into this balancing test and into their considerations. How has FERC treated those issues recently? So recently, um, FERC has taken a pretty uh, hands-off approach to the public convenience and necessity standard. Um, since 1999, when FERC issued this policy statement, um, you know, it's approved nearly every application that it's received. I think I, I've seen uh, research, uh, I believe, from, from Sue Tierney, who's, a, who's an analyst in, in, the, in the energy industry, um, that says there have been 400 applications and only two have been uh, rejected. Um, and so a number of, of groups have been very critical of, of FERC for essentially just, you know, rubber stamping these pipeline applications. What FERC has really focused on um, under the policy statement is does the proposed pipeline um, have, is there, is some of the capacity on the pipeline already contracted for um, by by shippers? So in other words, if, if, um, if FERC's, FERC's, what FERC's trying to do here is demonstrate that there's actually need for the pipeline or its public convenience and necessity standard. So the key question is, is there a need for this pipeline? And if the developer shows FERC that a certain percentage of the pipeline is already contracted for, then that's sufficient to demonstrate the need. And that's pretty much been it. Once you do that, you're, you're pretty much set. That's a pretty limited view of what need and demand is. Right. And that FERC's, FERC's recently has, has taken a pretty hands-off approach, but there's a much richer history if you go back before the policy statement and look at how um, FERC has interpreted uh, the standards. So FERC has um, taken a number of factors uh, into account. Do we really focus on two in our comment? Um, one is air pollution, um, since that obviously has a direct connection uh, to greenhouse gas emissions. And as air pollution came to be a nationally salient issue in the 1960s, um, this was a factor that FERC um, considered. And often uh, that was a factor that benefited the pipeline because uh, pipelines uh, would, in some cases, transport natural gas that would displace coal or oil burning facilities. And so natural gas was a cleaner burning fuel and it could actually uh, improve local air quality and FERC would account for that in a number of, uh, of these decisions in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we also look at um, decisions in the 40s and 50s in particular where FERC would look at how is the gas being used and uh, there was concern here that, you know, natural gas supplies were, you know, it was an exhaustible resource. And so FERC wanted to make sure that natural gas was being used for what it, it thought were high value uses. Um, at the time, it thought there, you know, power generation was a low value use because you could be using other fuels. Um, but there were other uses that may have been higher value. And so it was looking only to approve pipelines for these um, higher value 
um, uses. And so here it was, you know, it's, it's relevant to the greenhouse gas emission issue because it shows the breadth of factors um, that, that for considering it, it was explicitly looking at the gas's consumption, what the effects of, the, of that consumption was. And the commission has acknowledged recently that it has authority to cover environmental impacts of projects in its considerations, correct? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the policy statement is, you know, the existing policy statement from 1999 is pretty clear on this, that, you know, FERC does this economic test, but then it also, once it does that test, um, which I said mostly involves looking at whether or not there's, you know, subscribed capacity on the pipeline, it then looks at environmental issues. But pretty, those are typically centered around um, the local impacts um, you know, around the, the construction of the pipeline. And FERC hasn't yet expanded it to include greenhouse gas emissions. So speak a bit about what your comment is urging FERC to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have acknowledged that they have cons- the ability to consider environmental impacts. You're urging that they consider GHG impacts in general. But how does, uh, from a, a more how does this work in the process standpoint? Yeah. What, is, what is it that you're asking that they do? Yeah, so what we want FERC to do is to acknowledge in the policy statement um, that the economic risks associated with greenhouse gas emissions um, will be part of the economic balance, the threshold economic test uh, that determines, uh, you know, that's part of the public inconvenience uh, necessity analysis. And in addition to that second stage analysis, when they look at the environmental uh, considerations, they would also weigh greenhouse gas emissions there. And this is assuming that they maintain uh, this sort of uh, two-step framework. There are a number of commenters in the docket that sort of want them, you know, that, that, would, that would prefer that the environmental effects be included as economic effects um, as well. But I think the, the central point is that um, the commission should acknowledge uh, the relevance of greenhouse gas emissions in, analysis, in in its analysis. And what that will do in specific proceedings is that it will invite parties to be presenting this analysis, and the commission can figure out specifically how to weigh it um, in each case. So in this two-part framework, as it stands now, and should they uh, invite the, this type of analysis, uh, I know from my own work right now that, and we touched on it a bit earlier, that there's a, an increased investor interest in climate risk on econo- the economic future of corporations, how it impacts, uh, and, and how it impacts their investment decisions. So that would essentially go into that first step, right? Your, your sort of economic test, how investors see. Uh, climate, physical and transitional risks of climate issues impacting the pipeline itself and the or the facilities that are being considered in well, this process. Yeah, I mean, I think the most, um, the clearest example of an economic risk associated with a pipeline proposal is the stranded asset risk. Um, the idea that, you know, pipelines are long-lived pieces of infrastructure. They are built to last for many decades. Um, and you know, the, the concern is that due to, you know, whether it's simple supply and, you know, it's supply and demand in the market, but that could change due to competing zero emission technologies. It could do, it could change due to greenhouse gas regulation that may be coming down the line. But, you know, f- for whatever reason, 
um, because this infrastructure is used to transport fuel that emits greenhouse gas emissions, you're ultimately down the line going to be left with a stranded asset that somebody's going to end up having to pay for, even though it has you know little or, or no use at all to society. Um, and this is something the stranded asset risk is something that FERC already recognizes, but it should explicitly recognize that. Uh, greenhouse gas emission risk sort of amplifies the potential for um, uh, a stranded asset risk. And this is something that, um, you know, FERC shouldn't be satisfied with just looking at today's contracts, but should look at broader supply and demand fundamentals, projections about, um, you know, competing technologies, um, and other evidence that might be relevant to address this stranded asset risk. But I am very interested in the work that, that you're doing as well that looks at this problem more broadly than just the stranded asset risk um, and you know how, how you know, other ways that this sort of climate risk might play out for the energy industry. Uh, yeah, it's becoming a, an increasingly salient issue in, in the corporate and investor world. Um, beyond the potential for stranded assets, assets even more uh, in a shorter-term view, looking at the potential for weather and and increased uh, natural disaster issues, events to have a larger in, impact on supply chains, on uh, physical assets, as well as, you know, you sort of look at it in two buckets, the physical and transitional risk. Uh, and I think that it will provide, it sounds like what you're trying to do is to provide an opportunity to incorporate those concepts and the potential for analysis into FERC's decision-making, not necessarily asking them to, them to take any particular position, but just to say, these are things that are out there that others are very actively uh, considering as potential economic risks or, um, or environmental risks of operations. Why should FERC not consider them or explicitly exclude them. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're really asking for is, you know, look, we're recognizing that, th that if FERC does update its policy statement, this, is, this policy is going to have a long life. I mean, right, mm -hmm. the existing policy is 20 years old, so an updated policy may last, you know, who knows how many decades into the future. And to at least acknowledge there, to put a placeholder there for considering these risks. Um, and I think the commission's evaluation of them is going to change over time as facts on the ground change. I mean, I think the climate risk issue is much easier to see today with regard to coal, right? So, I mean, FERC doesn't regulate coal, but you can imagine that it did and imagine it had to approve new rail lines to transport coal. Um, you know, when you look at the current market fundamentals of coal, you look at all the reasons why demand for coal is on the decline, why investors uh, may be wary of, you know, investing in new coal infrastructure, why there may very well be big stranded asset risks with new coal infrastructure. And you'd see that, you know, climate change is a common thread, uh, you know, through, through many of these factors. And so you would want, if there were such a coal regulator, to account for those risks in its decisions. And, you know, at what point does natural gas you know, look like coal in that sense. I don't know when that's going to happen, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just a factor that should be part of the equation today, and it's going to evolve over time. In, in this two-part test, you have the economic side, you have the environmental impacts of the actual facility, also that you're asking uh, FERC to consider in their analysis, and you're looking at both upstream and downstream. Outside of the 
public com- convenience and necessity standard and the certification consideration, uh, you also have a discussion about NEPA and and the upstream and downstream effects as well. Um, and it, how should FERC consider these issues in their NEPA analysis? Yeah, so this has been a, a hot topic at the commission in 2018 is how does it do, how does it um, look at greenhouse gas emissions and its environmental impact statements under the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, which is this general law that applies to all major uh, federal proposed actions. Um, and um, there have been a couple commissioners that um, think that FERC needs to, you know, in its environmental impact statements, include certainly include downstream uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Those, so those are the emissions that are associated with the fuel when it's consumed. Uh, and um, so we think that certainly uh, those emissions do need to be uh, considered in a NEPA analysis. And courts have agreed on, on this as well in, in some contexts. Yeah, so there was an important court decision in 2017 uh, where uh, there was a, a pipeline being built in Florida, and it was very clear that the gas was going to be burned in power plants. And the court said, look, we can, this is very easy to calculate. There's no guesswork here. We know exactly what the gas is going to be used for, and there's, and there's no uh, you know, getting around the fact that this is, a, uh, you know, a, a, in NEPA terms, an indirect effect of constructing the pipeline is the gas is going to be consumed and you're going to have greenhouse gas emissions associated with that gas. Um, so the court said uh, FERC had to conduct that analysis. And the question is, how broadly does that decision apply? Does that mean every pipeline uh, NEPA analysis has to include uh, information about greenhouse gas emissions? Um, or does it was it confined to the specific facts of those cases where the, the uses were uh, very easily uh, known? And so this also gets to the issue of, you know, how much should FERC be asking pipeline developers about you know, the, how, much, how the gas is going to be used. Um, and so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a long history of FERC getting very involved in the issue of how gas is consumed. Um, and so here there's a very modest step that FERC can take, which is simply ask the developer how it's going to be used. And then there's a relatively easy calculation um, as to what the greenhouse gas emissions are going to be uh, with that pipeline. The harder question is then what do you do with that information? Um, and so there's a lot of interesting comments from environmental groups in the docket about what you might do, whether you use the social cost of carbon to convert the tons of emissions into monetary damages. Um, so a lot of interesting uh, work being done on this issue. Our comment simply says that there's simply no getting around the fact that this is an environmental effect of the pipeline's construction, and so FERC has to, uh, just as a legal matter, uh, include that information, include greenhouse gas emission information um, in its NEPA analysis. So essentially, it's a it's a legally relevant uh, piece of information that should be considered at, at that time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And FERC, in in not including it in in uh, recent uh, pipeline decisions, FERC I think is exposing itself to a you know a legal risk that the court's going to send the. Uh, issue right back to FERC to, to redo its analysis. Um, thank you, Ari, very much for speaking to us about your comments. They certainly raised some interesting issues on the incorporation of climate risk and GHG emissions into FERC's decision-making process. Thanks. It's my pleasure. <laughs>